All right, welcome everybody. We're going to do a review today of period seven, topic two. We're going to talk about the 1920s. This is a decade of immense change, and the change brings a lot of disillusionment to American society during this time. The timeline that we're working with, right after World War I ends, 1920s, usually thought of as the Roaring Twenties. Uh, so World War I will end in 1919. That's also the year that uh, the 18th Amendment that's the Prohibition of Alcohol Amendment. That gets ratified that year. The 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, that's 1920. Immigration quotas we're going to talk about, that's 1924. And this is the decade of the Ford, Model T, the Ford automobile. And by the end of the decade, uh, Ford has gotten so good at the assembly line, they're making about one car every second. All right, so the reading guide is structured a little bit differently. You have a, a variety of categories down the left column, and then I'm asking you to analyze and think about the causes that brought about this, this element of change in American society, and then the consequences or the way that we saw the changes appear in American society. So the first one we're going to look at is just the economy, the consumer economy. Consumerism really defined the 1920s. As I mentioned earlier, it's sometimes characterized as the Roaring Twenties. It had a booming economy. There was a lot of consumer goods made available to people during this time. What happened here? Cause-wise, uh, this is the era of mass consumption. That stat I just read earlier about Ford Motor Company making like one car every every few seconds. Um, that's that's what we mean by like th that's mass production. So manufacturing was booming. Manufacture, manufacturing had actually quadrupled from 1900 to 1930 in this country. And the efficiency of the workers was also improving too. Uh, a lot of that has to do with that scientific management, that Taylorism. That's the guy that came around with a clipboard and the stopwatch and, and was telling Ford Motor Company, should only give your employees three minutes for a bathroom break, 15 minutes for a lunch break, and you know try to ramp up that production as many ways as possible. Electricity also plays a very important role in making a lot of new consumer goods available to people. So you can't, you can't purchase a washing machine or a refrigerator or a radio for your house unless your house is wired for electricity. So once people get electricity, they want to get their hands on all of this stuff. The radio is probably the one item that people wanted the most. Uh, not, not very cheap. They had to save up for it. Uh, and, you know, it would be like $100, $200 item in, in the 1920s. So assembly line production is also improving things and uh, purchasing plans. You see an advertisement on the left there, Ford, Ford Motor Company advertising their own purchasing plan. Uh, radio companies would offer this too, where you didn't have to put all the money down at once. You could pay off the good in installments. So you might make a monthly payment. Uh, and then in a short period of time, you might be able to afford that big ticket item. So mass production, here's the consequence now. Mass production requires mass consumption. If you're going to produce all this stuff, you need people to buy it. So the 20s is the era of consumerism. And everybody's buying the same things. You know, Ford Model, Model T's were famous for all looking the same. Ford had the famous quote where he said, you can get it in any color as long as it's black. Um, but people are going to the same movies, they're, they're listening to the same radio programs, they're driving the same car, they're wearing the same clothes. There's a lot of conformity during the 1920s. Not too different than like the 1950s. Both decades, 20s and 50s, were coming out of a world war. There's a booming American economy, and there's a lot of conformity. And there's going to be a backlash to that conformity in both decades, too. 
Everybody wants to get their hands on an automobile. They cost uh, around seven to $800. It's about a three months wage for the typical people. So very affordable. Um, by the end of the decade, there's gonna be about one per family. And with all of these new consumer items like washing machines, uh, is, is gonna save people, especially women, a lot of time. Uh, washing laundry used to take a, like a full day for a family. Um, but now there's going to be more leisure time, and, and that means more leisure activities. And so one of the activities that really is increasing in popularity is movie theaters. And this is the era of prohibition. So if you're not going to go to a bar, maybe you're going to look for some other form of entertainment. And the movie theater becomes very popular. Nickelodeons were little cheap theaters. You can go see a movie for a nickel. A lot of people saw double features. Uh, a typical American is going to go to a movie about once every week. You know, think, compare that to what your life was like pre-pandemic. How, how, how frequently were you going to movies, um, you know, in a normal year? All right, the next sector down we're going to take a look at is the Red Scare. Red Scare is referring to um, a fear of communism, a fear of socialism, a fear of radicalism. Red is often associated with the color of communism. If you look at communist countries in the world and the colors that they pick for their flags, it's often red. And so people who are uh, referred to as communists, sometimes you'll hear them called reds. All right, so the, in the 1920s, there was a red scare in the United States. Why? We're coming out of World War I. At the tail end of World War I, Russia underwent a revolution. The Bolsheviks managed to come to power, overthrow the czar. Uh, they were bringing communism into their country. And they didn't stop there. They wanted communism to spread worldwide. They believed that communism would not work in just in one country. For it to work, it needed to be spread worldwide. So they wanted like workers of the world to unite, overthrow the bourgeoisie. And if you are a business owner in the United States, you are going to be a little bit worried about hearing all of this talk about, you know, overthrowing of the uh, of the bourgeoisie and the rise of the proletariat and the workers of the world uniting. Uh, so there, there is a um, now, there's a concern about that in the United States. There's also, remember, this is a time of that big immigration wave into the country, especially from Southern and Eastern Europe. And in Eastern Europe is where a lot of these people caught up in this Bolshevik revolution were from. Uh, and there was, a, there was a, a trend of a little bit more radicalism in that part of the world. Uh, and so there was a fear that some of these new immigrants coming into the country were going to bring this radicalism with them into the United States. There's a labor movement that's still growing in the United States. And there's huge strikes that take place in 1919. Uh, this is, again, the year that the war will end, but there's massive steel strikes and coal strikes uh, that are really going to, like, cripple the country's economy uh, it, during these strikes. And so there's, there's fear and agitation around that, and there's accusations of people that don't support these strikes are accusing them and, of, of being communists and radicals and, and trying to bring communism into the United States. There's also the Great Migration. There's African Americans moving out of the South into the North, and every time they speak up for racial equality uh, and, and speak out against discrimination, they're accused of being communists um, and saying, well, that's what a communist would say. So we saw, uh, what, what did we see then in the 1920s as a result of this Red Scare? The Palmer Raids are infamous for being, uh, the, I think, the, the largest mass arrest event in U.S. history. And as a result of, so the Palmer Raids, A. Mitchell Palmer was the name of an attorney general. 
young man worked underneath him named J. Edgar Hoover, who's going to become the most famous man uh, later for running the FBI for most of its history. Um, so this is right before the FBI is formed. And A. Mitchell Palmer has his house bombed. Uh, and then there's a massive roundup of, of anybody deemed radical, anybody who is suspected of being a socialist, Bolshevik, communist. And if they were foreign born, if they could find any evidence of that, or if sometimes if there was just uh, accusations of that, they were, they were deported. So there's this massive deportation that occurred during the, during the Red Scare here after the, the Palmer raids. Um, there's immigration quotas that are going to be put in place as a, as a backlash against the Red Scare. I'll talk more about those at the end of this review. There are race riots that are targeting African-American communities that have moved into the North. Um, and there's, there's so many of them in 1919 that that summer often gets called the Red Summer. But generally the climate is that it really, the, the Red Scare that happens in the 20s, again, I'm going to make a comparison of the 1950s. We see this in the 1950s too. There's a second Red Scare in the 1950s. In both Red Scares, what's happening is that um, there any, any discussion, anything that's a, not a conservative idea, any liberal idea, any progressive idea, any talk of racial equality or protection of workers um, is stifled. That discussion of that topic is stifled. It's labeled as a communist idea, and therefore, you know what, we're not even going to even consider that idea. Um, so it really takes the wind out of the sails of a lot of like progressive movements of African-American rights movements, of women's rights movements, um, because if you want to shut those movements down, all you got to do is just label them as communist movements. And that's just the climate of the Red Scare. So we see um, some ugliness here. At the top left picture, you see some uh, evidence of some horrific lynching uh, that took place during the Red Scare. The cartoons on the bottom uh, show you just a general sense. These are both like if you've got these on a short answer question, you're asked about the point of view of them, they're definitely showing the Red Scare. They're, they're like buying into the idea of a fear of communism that, that it's going to spread in the United States after World War I. Let's move on to the Great Migration. Right after World War I, massive numbers of African-Americans begin to move out of the South. One of the misconceptions a lot of people have is that slavery ends after the Civil War, 1865 slavery ends, and black people move out of the South, and that doesn't really happen. Um, we, we already talked about the factors that kind of trapped black people in the South after the Civil War, but here's where they finally are able to move out of the South. African-Americans are finally able to move out of the South during World War One. During World War One, millions of men left the country to go serve in the U.S. military. Their jobs were vacated. Northern industries, who had previously not wanted African-Americans working in them, went down to the South and started recruiting African-Americans to come move into the North and work in factories and manufacturing in the North. So we started, World War I plays a big role in the Great Migration. So it's, it's kind of like a pull factor. So the push factors were always there. There was always discrimination. There was racism always in the South. You know, the Jim Crow laws and all the segregation, the lynching problems in the South, those were the push factors. What's new during the era of Great Migration, if you're ever asked, like, what caused this, this uh, movement, this mass movement of people, you have to say something about World War I and the, the recruitment of African Americans to come to move to the North and pick up jobs during the war. Um, because that's the pull factor that's new during this time period. Those other factors were always there in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, but this new, this new thing in the 1910s is going to be the thing that finally brings African Americans out of the South. And it's a huge number, 6 million. It doesn't end during World War I. It continues 
into the 1920s, into the 1930s, it, it, then it gets even bigger during World War II. So the Great Migration, when it's all said and done, uh, will mean you know six million African Americans will be moving out of the South. This is the largest mass movement of human beings in U.S. history. The biggest thing. Prior to it, almost you know nine out of ten African Americans lived in the South in the United States. After after the Great Migration, it's like half and half. Half the African Americans in the country lived in the North or in the Midwest or the West and half lived in the quote-unquote South, the former Confederate states. So that's a, that's a pretty big change. And you also saw some pretty big increases in the population of some of these northern cities. The chart on the lower left is showing you how much the town of Chicago increased in size. But New York City, Detroit, um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, all of these would have experienced growing populations thanks to the Great Migration. Um, the Harlem Renaissance, Probably doesn't happen without the Great Migration. Jazz music certainly owes some uh, some of its origin to the Great Migration because it's a mixture of Southern music and Northern music, Southern blues and Northern swing. Marcus Garvey's Black Nationalist movement that grew out of the Harlem Renaissance probably doesn't happen without the Great Migration. Um, as African Americans are moving into Northern cities, we do need to acknowledge that they were often tried to, they like basically, white northern real estate agents and and um, city planners and city council members did everything they could to try to confine African Americans to certain neighborhoods. So we, we definitely see um, entrenched segregation occurring in northern cities. In New York City, the, the area that African Americans were kind of funneled into was called Harlem. In Chicago, it was south side and, and various pockets of neighborhoods on the west side, but not the north side of Chicago. Um, Milwaukee was heavily segregated. Detroit was heavily segregated. So <clears throat> these are you know, something we're going to see in a lot of northern cities. And we're also going to see a backlash to this movement in, in a lot of these cities, too. There's going to be race riots. So in the, there's going to be um, some pretty ugly ones, St. Louis, Chicago. And the most famous one, the one that's gotten a lot of attention lately, is the Tulsa race riot. Um, and it's probably unfair to even call it a riot. It was a massacre. So it was white people attacking an African-American neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, where they had built a pretty thriving um, pretty thriving community in, in, uh, in this neighborhood of, of Tulsa. So it was often nicknamed like they had this so many businesses, black-owned businesses. They called it Black Wall Street. Uh, and over the course of a few days, uh, white people in the area attacked the, the, um, this, this black area of town, burnt down buildings. They were using airplanes to, to like drop bombs on buildings to start fires. Uh, and it was, it was, this was a, uh, a moment in history that really was buried, right? Not mentioned in many U.S. history textbooks for the longest time. Most history textbooks today will mention it. And you're just starting to see some popular depictions of it in, in media, um, there was uh, HBO had a miniseries a couple years ago based on the Watchmen comic. So just go on HBO, look up the Watchmen. And the one of the central plot points of the miniseries is the Tulsa uh, massacre. And so it, it was depicted in in film, so to speak, in that uh, in that miniseries. If you so if you want to learn more about this, there's starting to be a ton of of material. Um, they're doing excavations right now to try to figure out how many people actually died. So there's reports that there was there was mass graves in certain cemeteries. Um, again, this was all, there was a lot, a lot of cover-up that occurred after this. And um, there, you know, the, the black community of town, the survivors, uh, had, you know, their 
oral history and the stories that have been passed down on their families. And, and so, you know, their families had always talked about hundreds and hundreds of people dying. Um, and then, you know, the, the official white uh, tally of deaths was much, much, much lower. Um, and so right now they're actually, as we speak, uh, in 2021, doing digs in some of these cemeteries to try to figure out just how many people actually died in this uh, Tulsa massacre. So kind of an interesting connection to the present there. Um, also, a side note, this is also a moment in time that um, I don't know if you're interested in following or ever engaging in the reparations debate, but uh, the Tulsa race massacre is uh, a moment that you've, you've actually seen a pretty vibrant um, reparations debate on a local level. You know, the, the state of Oklahoma wrestling with uh, the descendants of this and the survivors of this. Um, and, you know, should they, be, should they be given a reparation for the harm that was done to them during that time? So interesting discussion there. Uh, there were, I don't know how many more survivors are still alive at this moment in time, but there definitely was a lot of active collection of oral histories of survivors. Um, so we do have, a, a, you know, there's a pretty good uh, pool of evidence about what happened there. Okay, Harlem Renaissance. Harlem is a neighborhood in New York City um, towards the, uh, if you think of, I don't know how good your mental map is, but if you can picture Manhattan and the stuff that's on the north end of Manhattan, north of Central Park, that's, that's Harlem. So when African Americans were moving into New York City during the Great Migration, this is kind of where real estate agents tried to direct them to move into. So the Great Migration is a cause, segregation is a cause. But uh, the Harlem Renaissance is this flourishing of, of black literature, black poetry, black art, black music. And it is, uh, all of these artists are expressing overt racial pride, which is you know, not something that had previously been done by many African-Americans to take pride in their um, African-American culture. Um, but it's coming through in the literature and the poetry and the art and the music. Um, it's, and it's reaching a wider audience. So black people are consuming this art, but so are white audiences. And it's changing Americans' images of who is an African-American? What, what does their life look like? And, and so for the longest time, they were thought of as Southern, rural, poor, uneducated. But now, I mean, the, the, the big celebrities of the Harlem Renaissance are, you know, the whole country can see them as Northern, urban, cosmopolitan, sophisticated, educated. Uh, so it's reshaping Americans' images of, of African Americans. Um, it's called the Harlem Renaissance, but we should also acknowledge that similar flourishings of art and music and literature and poetry and just celebrations of blackness are occurring in other destinations of the Great Migration. So like Chicago, there's a Chicago Renaissance. In the 1920s, Detroit would have something similar. Um, and there's also a level of political activism that's, that's coinciding with this. Uh, so there's the, the black middle class is increasing in number. Um, and along with that activism, membership in the NAACP is, is increasing. Membership in Marcus Garvey's uh, organizations, United uh, Negro Improvement Association, and his black nationalism movement are all growing out of this also. The 1920s, also the era of prohibition. How did, pro how did a country that was obsessed with alcohol, uh, how did a country that was obsessed with alcohol and hardly everybody, and, excuse me, and almost everybody drank, how did a country like that manage to prohibit alcohol? Well, World War I plays a big role in that. Germany was the enemy of the United States and the German immigrants in this country, a lot of them were involved in brewery operations and brewery operations during the war were consuming grain, 
that the same grain that the United States was trying to encourage consumers to save for the war effort, the money that they were making, some of that, there was reports of like some of the big brewery owners in the country, Adolphus Bush, um, was sending money back to Germany. So that's going to lead to a, there, there's a lot of anti-German sentiment in the country during World War I that contributes to prohibition. But it had been a push in the country for decades, like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the progressives, the suffragists, they'd always been pushing for, uh, for prohibition. The impact, they saw the impact and what it was doing to families. You also had the Anti-Saloon League that had gotten really good at lobbying that turned its members into single-issue voters. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, has stolen a lot of ideas. Their political playbook is basically copied from the Anti-Saloon League. You, you have a small group of people, maybe 5% of a, of a state, um, and they're your members, but they have one core issue, and that's how they vote. They determine, you know, all that matters is how the candidate feels about this one issue. And so the Anti-Saloon League could approach politicians in competitive elections and say, if you want to win this election, you're going to need our 5%. If you think your race is going to be within 5%, you're going to need our votes. And if you want our votes, you're going to have to vote dry, is what the nickname was for voting for prohibition. And so that does a trick. On a, on a local level, the Anti-Saloon League starts off in Ohio, and then they get Ohio to go dry, and then they spread from there. And that's the momentum that carries forward the 18th Amendment. Um, you can always remember the year 1919 is when 18th Amendment kicked in. That's the year that the Shell's Brewery down the road in New Ulm had to switch from making beer to making soda. So they started making root beer. And that's why if you've ever had 1919 root beer before and you're wondering why is it called 1919 root beer, well, that's when Shell's had to start making that to try to stay open. The changes that prohibition brought to the American society. It did, it did decrease the consumption of alcohol a bit in the United States, but it, it, strangely enough, uh, even though it was illegal, it was still super easy to access. Um, there was religious exemptions for it, so you could still have communion wine, and some churches got pretty creative at, at offering communion wine, like a take-home version of it. Um, there was still a doctor's prescriptions you could get, so a lot of pharmacies you could still get alcohol at. You could buy near near beer and go home and add your own alcohol into it and, and consume it that way. You were allowed to stockpile you had a year, basically, before the amendment was ratified and the Volstead Act, which legislated uh, prohibition, went into effect. So you had a year to stock up. The Kennedy family, one of the famous anecdotes about John F. Kennedy's family is that his father had a stockpile that was large enough that lasted them the entire, the entire length of prohibition, which went on for um, a little over a decade. So he had, he had managed to acquire a decade's worth of booze prior to prohibition going into effect. Um, but you also had speakeasies, and the, a lot of these speakeasies are operated by by gangs, by the Al Capone gangs of the 1920s. They're making a killing off of uh, off of alcohol because it's still a huge demand for a product that just became illegal. So it bred, you know, it it turned a nation of drinkers into a nation of lawbreakers. The people who were supposed to enforce this were paid hardly nothing. And so the uh, prohibition agents often would just take bribes from the gangs, from people like Al Capone, from the people running the speakeasies, and they would just look the other way and, and then not break up these, these bars that were illegally serving alcohol. Um, so a lot of just a lot of profound disrespect for the law and a lot of corruption grew out of this, uh, grew out of this era. Um, 
people did turn to try to find alternatives to bars. So, so the rise of movie theaters, I mentioned earlier, breweries had to come up with a new way to make money. So they would make soft drinks, grape juice. If you were uh, um, somebody making wine, you might have to turn to making grape juice. Shell started making root beer. Um, but it also created a tax revenue issue in this country. We, uh, Wilson had decreased the tariff. We had just started putting the income tax into place. And then by prohibiting alcohol, that meant there was going to be no more excise tax. So if, if you're going to reduce the, if you only have the tariff and the income tax left and you're going to um, reduce the tariff, that means you're going to have to rely more and more on the income tax. So it would increase dependence on that, on that income tax going forward. Um, the 1920s is sometimes characterized as the era of the new woman or the flapper. Uh, so causes for that, women get the, the 19th Amendment, that kicks off in 1920, so women are, are uh, under the Constitution, have the right to vote, except we have to remember asterisk next to that. If you're a black woman in the South, it's going to be nearly impossible to vote because of all the voter restrictions in place. So this is mainly like white women uh, in the, in a, again, primarily in the northern urban areas. So urbanization, new leisure activities. Um, new ways for women to get out of the house and, and be on their own and not have to rely on a man to take them somewhere. Like the bicycle uh, is kind of a, a overlooked thing that was really important in women's rights. Um, they, women could ride that wherever they wanted. They didn't need a man, uh, so they could go all over town. Same with the automobile. Although, although women were frowned upon, they, that they were looked down upon if, if a woman was driving herself in a car. That was kind of a um, cultural uh, norm that... that uh, uh, was being violated there. This is also the era where we're starting to see the, the birth of a, uh, no pun intended, of a birth control movement. Margaret Sanger is famous for starting that. Uh, so there's no pill yet. The pill will come along later, but Margaret Sanger is trying to advertise and, and educate women on the various types of birth control that they can access. Um, diaphragms, suppositories, spermicide, those are the things she's trying to encourage women. Here's how you can acquire these goods. Here's how you can purchase them. Here's where you can buy them at. Here's how to use them. Uh, and so a lot of towns and states will institute gag orders and, uh, on Margaret Sanger and they like try to ban her from talking in their community. But when we, when we say the new woman of the 1920s, what are we talking about? What are the changes for women? Well, women, uh, the flapper, the image of the flapper is a woman who's very independent, right? She, is, uh, she smokes, she drinks, she dances, she drives her own car, she probably engages in premarital sex. So she's just, she's testing all of these cultural norms. She's wearing revealing clothing. My gosh, you can see her knees. Holy cow. Uh, so the women's rights movement, you know, this is kind of the, um, the stereotypical image of the women's rights uh, movement in the 1920s. But here's a paradox. The women's rights movement, after getting the 19th Amendment, the biggest thing they had been fighting for for decades, the movement fractures in the 1920s. They, they, the one thing that they could kind of all unite behind, they get that, and then, and then they splinter. So now that they have the right to vote, they're, they're joining political parties. And so they're, you know, Republicans and Democrat, Democratic women, they're not cooperating as much as they used to. They're splintering along racial lines. They are splintering along religious lines. This is, the, again, the, the decade of disillusionment. The women's rights movement becomes disillusioned. Um, some women's rights uh, pioneers, like Alice Paul, who pushed for the 19th, 19th Amendment, says that the next step is to push for the Equal Rights Amendment. And not all women are sure if that's the way to go. So... Because of that fracturing, even though they have gained the right to vote, their political influence is 
is that, again, here's the paradox, it, it kind of declines in the 1920s um, because of all the fracturing within the movement. One other impact is that we see because of the newfound independence of women, um, marriage rates decline and divorce rates increase. And you can see that in the chart uh, that I've, I've overlaid over the, over the uh, famous flapper um, magazine cover there. Okay, how about how, how, where do we see this disillusionment uh, in the literature and art world? Um, the, the literature and art will get a lot more cynical in the 1920s. Why? World War I, um, mass death in World War I. A lot of people questioning their faith uh, in World War I. All that mass production, that mass consumption was increasing a lot of conformity in American society. So this is a backlash to that conformity. There's a lot of people disillusioned by the Red Scare and what the conservative political climate was doing to the United States and free speech and what we're allowed to advocate for. So we see some criticisms and pushback in the, in the literature and the art world. Um, the Great Gatsby, a book written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, a Minnesota writer, um, if you ever read that book, you know, kind of one of the themes of that book is um, here's a man, uh, Jay Gadsby, who was incredibly rich and he could buy anything, any, anything in the world that he wanted, but what he couldn't buy was his true love and happiness. And so he, you know, it, it has a very tragic ending, the book does. And this was, this was F. Scott Fitzgerald's way of criticizing that consumerism. You know, you're going to be able to buy anything you want in the 1920s, but are you really going to achieve true happiness? Uh, the art world got a lot more abstract. Uh, you're seeing uh, the picture, the big painting on the left there is called Nude Descending a Staircase. So it does, you know, if you can find the nude body in there, congratulations. So Marcel Ducamp is, is the uh, painter there. Kadinsky is a famous abstract artist who's, who's gaining popularity at this time. Jazz music is hard for people to figure out. It's so new and modern. It's so improvisational. Uh, something else happening in the literature world is that a lot of writers are just getting so disillusioned with the United States and the conservative climate of the United States and the conformity of the United States that they, they leave. They move out of the United States. They move to Europe. A lot of them, their destination is Paris, uh, is where they want to move to, ideally. Um, religion. Okay, what's going on in the, in the world of religion? Uh, Darwin's theory of evolution is really putting uh, a wedge in, in religious groups. So, you know, the theory, in a, in a lot of people's view, was challenging the, the, the literal interpretation. Can you continue to literally interpret the book of Genesis? Uh, you know, so you have some religious groups that saying, the book of Genesis says, you know, God created everything in, in seven days. And so that means, you know, seven 24-hour days. And other people are saying, no, the, the days in the book of Genesis have a broader meaning um, and so a day could be, you know, it could be a symbolic day. It could be like a thousand years, ten thousand years, a million years in time. Um, and so there's people who are who are getting a little bit more loose with their interpretation of various Bible passages, and, and they're taking more of like a a big picture approach to the Bible. And so this group are called modernists, right? And and so there's a there's a battle between fundamentalists and modernists. In the, in the United States in the 1920s. World War I also helped contribute to this. All the death caused a lot of people to question um, their religious beliefs. You know, how could God let something like that happen? That was, that was a, uh, a thought that a lot of people had in the 1920s. So what did we see? We saw uh, some pretty uh, ugly battles between fundamentalists and modernists. Fundamentalists were pushing for 
as more and more religion in the public sector. So put more religion in the public schools. They wanted the kids to all have uh, Bible reading as in part of the public school curriculum and to do the Lord's Prayer in the public school. Maybe the principal would do it over the intercom. And to stop teaching evolution since that was a big threat. You know, the fundamentalists read the Bible literally. Every single passage, there could be no contra there was no paradoxes, there was no contradictions anywhere in the Bible you know, from a fundamentalist point of view. So any idea from the outside world that might challenge any idea in the Bible wanted to shut down discussion of that. And, and the biggest example of that in the 1920s is the famous Scopes trial, sometimes called the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee. John T. Scopes was a substitute teacher brought into a small rural Tennessee school to substitute in a biology class. He tried to teach evolution. Tennessee had a law that said you can't do that. So he's arrested uh, for violating that law. And some of the biggest lawyers in the country descend on this tiny little town of Tennessee. Uh, one lawyer to defend John T. Scopes, the teacher, another lawyer to defend the state of Tennessee and this law in the school district who uh, arrested him. And the whole country listens to this trial. They broadcast it on the radio. This is the 1920s. Everybody's getting a radio in their home. And it's just a carnival. It's a carnival atmosphere, this trial. Um, the end result of it is that Scopes is convicted of the trial. But the town of Tennessee is kind of like the laughing stock for the rest of the, you know, the people living outside of the South, the people who are not fundamentalists, the modernists. This was, this was their, um, their take on that trial. Okay, I think the last section of our notes deals with immigration. And this is the one that, that probably has the most AP test questions written about it. They love asking questions about the 1924 Immigration uh, Quota Act that, that uh, Congress developed in the midst of the 1920s. Remember that prior to the 1924, um, there had been an, an immigration wave coming into this country that was, looked a little different than the old immigration wave. Prior to the Civil War, the old immigration wave was mostly Northern and Western Europeans. After the Civil War, it's mostly Southern and Eastern Europeans. So that's the cause, that's a contributing factor. We mentioned earlier there's a Red Scare, that, that plays a role. I didn't list it in the notes there, but you might wanna add that as a cause. You know, so there's this belief that these immigrants are radical um, and that they're going to bring the radicalism into the United States. So what happens? So in, there's also uh, I sh uh, Madison Grant is, is a person whose name is mentioned here who's really contributing to that, that nativism um, in the country. That nativism is a, a fear and hatred of, of immigrants. And he, he writes a book called The Passing of the White Race. And his argument is that miscegenation, which is the mixing of races, is going to destroy the United States, and all of these immigrants are contributing to that. And maybe you've heard of, like, a couple years ago, outside of Mankato West, there was um, a hate crime committed where somebody spray-painted immigration as white genocide on the steps of, of Mankato West High School. That idea, that, that notion that, that the great displacement theory that immigrants are just going to, like, displace all the white people in this country, that goes back to Madison Grant. Madison Grant was kind of the guy that came up with that idea um, in the 1910s, 1920s. And so his, his idea was that if, uh, if a Jew and a Christian get married and have a baby, that baby is not like half uh, Christian and half Jew. It's all Jew. If a black person and a white person get, uh, get together, have a child, that child is not half black, half white. It is black. And so this was his idea of how white people were going to be replaced by intermixing 
with other groups of people. And he didn't want that to happen, and he had a ton of followers. And then, so he is, he's a core element of this nativism. So Congress gets on board with his ideas. They pass this Immigration Quota Act in 1924. It is, it's, it's easily probably one of the more racist laws that the country ever passed. And so they said, let's scale back immigration. Um, and so they've came up with the most creative way to do this. So they said, let's just give each country a number. Each, each nation can have a quota of how many people from that country can move, in, move into the United States in a given year. Where do we come up with that number from? Well, let's, maybe, we take, maybe we take a look at the current demographics of the United States, the current composition of the United States, and we use that to set the quota for, you know, for, each, for each nation. You'd think, okay, that would, that would maybe make sense if you wanted to keep the current demographic composition, but the Congress said, no, we actually don't like the current composition. It's too diverse. Let's go back in time. Instead of taking the 1920 census numbers, let's take an old census. Let's take the 1890 census before before the Southern and Eastern European immigrants started moving into the country, let's take those census numbers and let's base our quota numbers off of that census. That's what they did. So this is how they managed to reduce immigration from, you know, quote unquote, undesirable countries. And they, they reduced it to some of the lowest levels in U.S. history. And you can see it in this chart right here that, um, I'm going to go back a slide. So you can see this big wave picking up uh, throughout the 1800s. The immigration wave is increasing. It's got its little dips here, but overall it's generally increasing. That, that big wave in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, you know, it, it really peaks there. That's the Southern and Eastern European. It definitely drops during World War I, but then it picks back up again and then slams shut uh, thanks to the 1924 Quota Act. So really, that, that really kind of stopped immigration into this country. Uh, in 1924. That law would stay in place until 1965. So in the midst of World War II, in the midst of Hitler's rise to power, while all of these Jewish people in Europe are trying to get out of Europe, we have, the United States has, quotas in place that is blocking a lot of the Jewish people who are trying to get out of Hitler's Holocaust. So that's one of the sad, sad consequences of this Immigration Quota Act of 1924. Another change, another uh, change we saw as a result of immigration in the 1920s was the rise of the Klan, the re-emergence of the Klan. The Klan had died. The Ulysses S. Grant had kind of managed to stamp out the Klan in the late 1860s, early 1870s. There's a film released in the 1910s called Birth of a Nation, where the Klan are depicted as the heroes of the film, and everybody wants to be a Klan member again. And instead of being a Southern institution that was focusing its anger and hatred on black people, it spread nationwide. Huge membership in the Midwest. A third of its members were in the Midwest. And it found all sorts of new groups of people to hate, not just black people. But it now it targeted its rage and anger at Catholics, at immigrants, at Jews, at anybody who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, it, it, and as long as you were not a socialist or a radical or, you know, so that's, that's who they were focusing their, their anger on. They were very active in Minnesota. In Minnesota, they were pushing for try to get school districts to incorporate more Protestant religion into the public school day. Reading the Bible, doing the Lord's Prayer, those things I mentioned earlier that the fundamentalists wanted, the Klan wanted that too. The Klan targeted, um, you know, the, the, they were blaming a lot of things on uh, any, any downturn in the economy, they were blaming on Jewish bankers. They tried to recruit 
from the Shriners. They try to recruit from the VFW. They try to recruit. Their, their best recruitment tool is if they could get a Protestant minister to join, then the minister would, would spread membership down to the congregation. So that was usually the ticket. If you saw clan members pick up in a certain community, it was often because a minister in that community had joined the clan and had started a chapter in that community. So in Minnesota, uh, we saw, here's some images from Minnesota. A lot of activity, clan activity in and around Owatonna was probably the biggest one, and then Faribault, Albert Lee, so kind of the 35W corridor is where we saw the most clan activity. A lot of like annual conventions and parades. Uh, they actually raised enough money in Owatonna, the clan chapter there did, to buy a park. So they'd have their little, you see an advertisement for it, they have their little conclaves. Um, they purchased a park in Owatonna and, and they would have picnics there and they'd have gatherings of, for their members and they'd have activities for the children um, and then try to, you know, like build a clan community in, in Owatonna. So there's, a, there's an ugly little chapter in, in Minnesota history. Um, but the, the clan spreads nationwide um, because they're finding all of these new groups to, to attack, right? So, so as immigrants are, are moving into all parts of the country, clan chapters are popping up in response to this immigration wave. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit about kind of the disillusionment that's unfolding in the United States in the 1920s. So that's where we're going to stop. Uh, don't forget to take a look at the possible short answer questions. And that is it for this review.